so dry. Did. 
morning. We're so glad you decided to join us this morning at Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church. That was a new song we wanted to just kind of play ahead of time for you guys. It's a Phil Wickham, This Is Our God. We might be doing that one again in the near future. Would you stand with us as we continue in worship?
may be seated. Good morning. It's a joy to gather with you together this morning as we come together to, to worship God together. If you're new or visiting, my name is Tim. I'm the senior pastor here at Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church. We're glad that you're here with us. If you are new or visiting, um, and there's anything you want to communicate with the church or you'd like, you'd like more information about the church, there is a, a Connect card on the seat in front of you. You can fill out any information in there. Um, any questions you may have, you can drop those in the offering boxes on the back wall on your way out this morning. Those boxes are also where you can place um, offerings if you want to contribute to what we're doing here at Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church. As a church, we talk about how we want to be about three things all the time, right? We want to be about reaching people with the gospel, about growing to be like Christ and serving other people. And so there's a few things coming up that will, we hope, in, enable and encourage each of those things to happen. So one is that starting next Sunday, I'm going to start leading us through a, a book called Essential Christianity during the, the Sunday school hour. So if you've already signed up for that, the books are here. They're on the table over in the library. You can grab one of those books, and we will start next Sunday um, going through that book. If you are here and you're interested in that, you haven't signed up yet, we don't have any extra copies right now, but I can order more copies, and I can also email you a PDF copy of the book while you wait. So if you are interested in that, you can just write, I'm interested in Essential Christianity on the connect card and drop it in the offering plate or come talk to me after church. Um, but we can, but I'm going to come forward to walking through that book. It's just 10 kind of key words that shape the gospel and tell us about who Jesus is and what he did for us. And so I'm looking forward to walking through that book with some of you. The other thing we have coming up that I am really excited about that will help us, I believe, grow to be like Christ and also serve others is something called Practicing the Way, which is a new kind of small group series we're going to start the Sunday after Easter. So you probably heard me talk about it a few times. Some of you have already seen this video, but we're going to watch a short video now just kind of introducing what Practicing the Way is. A lot of people feel stuck in their spiritual journey, like there's a gap between the life they are reading about in the teachings of Jesus and the life they are actually living. Is the way I'm living really what Jesus called life to the full? I felt that way for years. In my discipleship to Jesus, it's like I grew up to a certain point of maturity, and then I hit this plateau. I was not becoming more like Jesus. Instead, I was becoming more hurried and exhausted and on edge. Something about the way I was following Jesus was not producing the level of transformation that I knew was possible. During this time, I was pastoring a local church in one of the most secular cities in the world. And like most pastors, I knew that discipleship or spiritual formation was a major problem in the Western church. After 20 years of trial and error, I realized what I needed and our church needed was what Dallas Willard called a curriculum for Christ-likeness, a way to learn not just the Bible and theology, but in Jesus' words, how to obey what he commanded. That's what practicing the way is, a curriculum for Christ-likeness. 
It is a simple, beautiful way to integrate spiritual formation into your church or small group. We are developing nine practices. Each one is designed to walk you and your church into time-tested disciplines for the spiritual life. Practices like Sabbath, solitude, prayer, fasting, and more. Each practice is a four-session experience where you come together with your small group or community for a time of teaching and conversation. Then you go out that coming week and practice. Together, these nine practices form a rule of life for the modern era, a lifestyle based on the way of Jesus himself that is conducive to deep inner healing and transformation. We're also working on podcasts, books, and all sorts of resources for ongoing spiritual formation. We are a crowd-funded nonprofit, and all our resources are completely free thanks to the generosity of an online community of givers we call The Circle, which is made up of people across the world who care deeply about discipleship and spiritual formation working its way into the fabric of the Western Church. Our goal is to serve you and your church in your spiritual journey. Join us in practicing the way of Jesus. That's a, an overview of what practicing the way is. And as he said in there, there are nine practices. So the first one we're going to step into together as small groups and as a church is the Sabbath. And I think these are designed, these are made to work best in kind of small group settings. So one of the things that we need is we seek to have ways to serve others, to people who are willing to host small groups and lead discussion in small groups. And so this morning after the service, during the Sunday school hour, so we'll meet back in here at 1045. We're going to have a meeting for people who are either interested in leading or hosting, or if you just want more information about what practicing the way is, we're going to invite you to come and be a part of that this morning at 1045. For the first practice we're going to step into, the week after Easter, we'll kind of start this. It'll involve me preaching on the topic, and also these small groups, is the Sabbath. And so we're going to watch one more short video just on what the Sabbath practice specifically will look like. Sabbath is a practice from the way of Jesus by which we cultivate a spirit of restfulness in all of our lives. It's a rhythm that God the Creator built into the fabric of the human body and creation itself. Every seventh day, we stop, rest, delight, and worship. Sabbath is for all of us in every stage of life and in every season. Through Sabbath, we say yes to the easy yoke of Jesus and find rest for our souls. and will be helpful for us as we seek to become more like Jesus as a church. So my, my heart, my hope for this whole series of practicing the way practices is that many, most of us who are involved in this church would be part of one of these small groups and that as a church we would grow together to become more like Jesus through observing these practices. So again, they each be four weeks long. The first one will start and run the four weeks following Easter, but if you are interested in leading or hosting, 
and invite you to that meeting following church this morning at 1045 back up here. Get to that meeting. We won't have our normal cross-training Sunday school hour. We'll have kind of this will be in place of, of that. Um, but I'd invite you to come and be a part of that. So as we continue in worship this morning, would you pray with me as we prepare our hearts to sing and worship God? Father, we thank you for this chance to gather together as your people in this place that you've brought each person here this morning for a purpose according to your great wisdom and sovereign power. We are all here because you thought it right and best that we are here. Father, we pray that you would work in each of our hearts this morning as we sing with the words that we sing pour forth from our hearts, not just robotically, but out of a deep feeling of desire to glorify you and to hear your word. Would you use your word to make us more like Jesus? As we fellowship together following the service, would you use that fellowship to encourage us and to strengthen us and to build us together as your church? Father, would you do work in each one of our hearts and minds this morning to conform us more into the image of Jesus? Father, for those who are here who are hurting, whether it's emotionally or physically, spiritually, those who are feeling pain, who are suffering, would you be with them? Would you work in mighty ways to bring comfort and peace? To bring healing to those who are in need of healing? bring assurance of your goodness to those who need to be assured of your goodness. You bring comfort to those who need comfort. Father, would all that we do here this morning, would it serve ultimately to bring you glory and honor and praise? Praise to all in Jesus. Amen. I'm going to continue singing in a moment. Um, our church has had a ladies' Bible study the past couple of months. We've been going through Priscilla Schreier's um, The Armor of God study. And the next couple of songs um, kind of reminded me of the piece of armor, the Helmet of Salvation. It's one of the last ones that we went through. Um, specifically the song, Who You Say I Am. Um, here's the quote from the book. Um, Priscilla says, Your identity is your weaponry. Put on the helmet of your salvation, or putting on the helmet of your salvation is akin to knowing who you are in Christ, fortifying your thinking with it, and living in a way that's congruent with it. When you do this, you break the enemy's stronghold and also tap into the power to defect or to deflect future attacks. So just this idea of 
who we are in Christ versus what we might be telling ourselves or what we're hearing elsewhere. We're a child of God, and that's so powerful, and it's important to, to put on that, that helmet of salvation. So please stand and sing with us. But he brought me in Oh, his love for me Oh, his love for me Who the sun sets free Oh, is free indeed I'm a child of God Yes, I am Free he has ransomed me, His grace runs deep. While I was a slave to sin, Jesus died for me. Yes, He died for me, who the
living hope there is salvation in the name of Jesus that we cannot earn, that it's only a gift of your grace and your goodness. Father, we thank you for that gift of your grace. We thank you for your goodness that we sang of this morning. Thank you that Jesus is indeed our living hope. Praise on Jesus' name. Amen. May be seated. <clears throat> you are likely familiar with the concept that when we're faced with stressful situations, our brains have kind of two default responses, right? Either fight or flight. But in, in actuality, that idea of fight or flight oversimplifies things a little bit. There's actually a number of other responses that our, our brains sometimes automatically go to in stressful situations. Thankfully, the, the scientists who name these sorts of things have helpfully continued the naming pattern, and so all the words still start with F. Right? So another example, another response to stress is that we simply freeze. I think of deer in a headlight. There's also a response to stress called the fawn response, which is basically that you just kind of submit to or you cooperate with whatever is causing you stress. And then finally, the final F in these responses is the fatigue response, in which you just become incredibly tired. You fall asleep in response to stress. And this week I came across this article in The Atlantic titled this, titled, Why Some People Respond to Stress by Falling Asleep. And in this article, the, the author tells about a time that he and his wife were having an argument, and there was a bit of a lull in the argument, so he kind of went off into their bedroom to give himself a little bit of space. And the next thing he knew, his wife was shaking him awake because he had just entirely, unintentionally fallen asleep after having this fight. So this article goes on to explore how like, our, our brain's default reaction to stress has a lot to do with how we learn to cope with stress earlier in, in life. In fact, this, this article focuses a lot on this concept called learned helplessness. Without going into a lot of detail about that, the basic idea is that if you learn at a young age that you are unable to solve problems, you will not try very hard later in life to solve problems. And instead, you look for other ways out of dealing with problems. You look for ways to escape your problems. When I was in, in college, one of my education classes, we did this activity where like, every student in class was given a sheet of paper. But unbeknownst to us in the class, half the students were given a sheet of paper with like, these really difficult, almost impossible logic questions on it, while the other half were given a sheet of paper with easy logic questions on it. So each half of the class was given, I don't know, five or ten minutes to solve these questions, and they turned the sheets in, and then each student was given a new sheet, and this time their students received the same 
question. And this news sheet contained kind of medium difficulty logic questions on it. And the students who were originally given the hard logic questions did extremely poorly on this new sheet, right? Because they had learned from the first sheet that they couldn't solve these problems, so why would they even try on this new sheet? Whereas the students who were given the easy sheet first did well on this medium-level difficulty sheet because they had learned that they could solve these problems. And the point being that the people who had been given the nearly impossible questions first, that they had learned helplessness, they had learned that they were incapable of solving this kind of problem, so they didn't try all that hard to solve medium difficulty problems. They gave up before they really got started. They learned helplessness. It's this idea that people who early in life learn that they can't handle difficult circumstances look for a way to escape those circumstances later in life. Like, I can't categorically say that Jesus' disciples had some kind of learned helplessness. But what I do know is that in today's passage, we see the disciples fall asleep when it seems like sleep should be the last thing in their mind. They're faced with a stressful situation, and they fall asleep. They fall asleep in the midst of stress and trial. When it seems like they should be doing something, they simply doze off. Jesus, on the other hand, right, despite the fact that he is the one who is ultimately under the most pressure and stress, right, does not fall asleep. In the midst of trial and stress and anguish, Jesus takes action. And in so doing, in his action, he serves as a model for us. He shows how we ought to act when we face life's most challenging circumstances. Look, what I hope we'll ultimately come away with and learn this morning is this. That Jesus, in his full humanity, is our perfect example of how to face life's trial. We're going to be in Luke chapter 22 this morning, looking at verses 39 through 46. And if you've been coming week after week and you've been part of our series through Luke, you may have noticed that I skipped a passage from last week. Right? So last week we ended at Luke 22, verse 6, and this week we're starting at Luke 22, verse 39. If you've noticed that, you might notice also that it's a fairly important passage that I skipped. I skipped the Last Supper. But the reason I skipped the Last Supper is that the Last Supper is the foundation for all that we do when we take communion together at the church. And so it made sense to me to preach that passage on a Sunday when we're going to take communion together. So next Sunday we will take communion together as a church and I'll preach that passage next Sunday. So this morning we come to Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 39. So this passage comes right after the Last Supper. And one thing you need to know about the Last Supper in order to make sense of today's passage is that during that meal, during the Last Supper, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that he knows what is about to happen to him. During the Last Supper, Jesus says things like, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. 
And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And he says, and the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. Jesus knows he is going to suffer. Jesus knows his blood is going to be poured out. He knows he's going to be betrayed by one of his own disciples. He knows what lays ahead of him. And so as the Last Supper concludes, Jesus leaves the upper room where he and his disciples are eating that Last Supper. And as has been a pattern all throughout the week, he leaves the city of Jerusalem and he goes outside the city onto the Mount of Olives. And that's where today's passage picks up in verse 39. We read this. Jesus went out, as usual, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. This is clearly a a tense and a trying situation for all who are involved. The disciples can sense, they know that that something is up. they're, They're under a great deal of stress. This is one of those moments where those brains' automatic responses are bound to kick in. But Jesus gives the disciples a task to do. He tells them to pray, to pray that they would not fall into temptation. And then what we see next is that Jesus then goes and models for them exactly what he wants them to do. Verse 41 we read, He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them. He knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray that you will not fall into temptation. Here we see that the disciples have been overcome by the Fatigue response to stress. Right? They have been exhausted from sorrow, Jesus says. Right? Even though Jesus told them to pray, verse 45 says, when he returns, he finds them sleeping, exhausted, their sorrow, their anxiety over the situation have driven them to, to sleep and to exhaustion. And Jesus responds by asking them, why are you sleeping? And he repeats the command he gave them the first time. He says, get up and pray that you will not fall into temptation. And again, like I'm not here to psychoanalyze the disciples' state of mind from just this passage. But it seems at least possible that the disciple fell asleep instead of praying because they didn't really believe that prayer would help the situation. They didn't really believe that prayer was 
powerful enough to help in this moment. Instead, they felt helpless to face the challenges that were coming. And so, instead of taking action and actively praying the way Jesus told them to do, like their brains decide to just escape the situation by falling asleep. And again, as I said a minute ago, it's like the contrast with Jesus himself is stark. Jesus is the one who's going to suffer the most. Jesus is the one who will be betrayed by Judas. Jesus is the one who will have his blood poured out. And yet he doesn't give in to helplessness. His brain doesn't check out and have him go to sleep. Jesus does the one thing that he can do, right? the one thing any of us can do when we're faced with monumental trial. He prays. Jesus, in his full humanity, is our perfect example of how to face life's trial. And the trial that Jesus faces is far greater than anything, anything that you or I will ever experience. Because Jesus does not just face death. He does not just face the excruciating pain of crucifixion. But Jesus, the most daunting thing that he faces is the wrath of the Father. The heart of Jesus' prayer. Just a few words. Father, take this cup from me. Which leads to the question, what is this cup that Jesus wants taken from him? Why is that Jesus' prayer? Throughout the Bible, we see the image of a cup being used often as a picture of God's wrath. There are many examples of this, but let me just give you two quick examples. One from the Old Testament and one from later in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, in Jeremiah 25, verse 15, we read this. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me. Take from my hand this cup filled with the wine of my wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. A cup filled with God's wrath. And then in the New Testament, in Revelation 14, starting in verse 9, says this, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives its mark on their forehead or on their hand, they too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. So that cup of God's wrath is the cup that Jesus is referring to in verse 42. The cup he wants taken from him. Jesus does not just go to the cross to show us what sacrificial love looks like. Jesus does not go to the cross simply as a consequence for his teachings about God. He goes to the cross to bear God's righteous wrath against sin. He goes to the cross to receive the wrath that your sins and my sins and the sins of all who trust in him deserve. Romans 5, Paul is explaining all that Jesus did for us. And in verse 9 he says this, 
since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Our sin, our disobedience, our rebellion against God deserves the wrath of God. But in going to the cross, Jesus takes all that sin upon himself. That's what Jesus faces here in this passage. He faces all of God's wrath poured out on him on the cross. You grasp how terrible that would be for Jesus. To face all of God's wrath against the sins of all who trust in Jesus. So I don't want to minimize any trial you're going through right now or any trial you may face in the future. But none of the trials we face will ever be worse than what Jesus faces here. So however Jesus responds to this trial, it is certainly sufficient for any trial we may face. He serves in his full humanity the perfect example of how to face life trial. And that first clause there, in his full humanity, is also incredibly important. Sometimes we, or at least I, can, can be prone to think that because Jesus is God the Son, that he has some special or unique power to overcome challenges. But Jesus was also fully man. And in this moment, in this passage, we see Jesus, in his full humanity, we see him facing sorrow and trial using only the means that are available to any one of us. And the fact that Jesus faced these moments of weakness and temptation and trial like this in his full humanity, it's incredibly important to our faith. The author of Hebrews makes it clear when he writes this in Hebrews 4.15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. In this passage in Luke, we see Jesus at his weakest. We see him facing Temptations, temptations to run away from the pain and suffering that he knows is coming. We see him wrestling with the fact that God's will for his life will lead him into pain and suffering and death and bearing God's wrath. And yet, the important part, he faces all that, yet he did not. He is our perfect example of how to face life's trials. And this passage in Luke is one of the clearest pictures of that in all the Gospels. If you want to know how you ought to act, what you ought to do when you're facing life's trials, if you want to know what to do when the future seems dark and bleak, 
if you want to know what to do when everything seems to be going against you, this passage gives us meaningful insight into how we ought to face those challenges. And the answer ultimately, the thing that we see Jesus do, that he turns to the Father in prayer. And he urges the disciples to do the same thing. He urges his disciples to pray that they would not fall into temptation, even as he himself goes and he prays. But whereas the disciples fall asleep seemingly because they do not ultimately truly believe that their prayers will be effectual, Jesus gives himself fully to the act of praying to his heavenly Father. If he truly believes that prayer is our best resource in the face of trial. So the question then that we're ultimately led to ask in light of the passage of this, is my attitude about the effectiveness of prayer more like that of the disciples or more like that of Jesus? That is to say, if prayer for me is something that I just kind of do as I go through the motions, something I do because I know I'm supposed to do it, but deep down I struggle to really believe that it can actually help me in life's great trials. Or if prayer for you, the best and the only logical course of action as you face life's greatest difficulties. Are you more likely to fall asleep while praying? Or are you more likely to pray so earnestly, so fervently, that like Jesus, your sweat is like drops of blood falling to the ground? And to be clear, like I am preaching this sermon in particular as much to myself as I am to any of you. Like I have literally fallen asleep mid-sentence while praying like before bed at night. So I'm not here to judge, but like, and like when hard things come, right? I want to do something to, to fix the problem. I want to make things right. I want to take some kind of action. The fact of the matter is that running to God in prayer does not seem action-y enough to me sometimes. I fail to truly believe that prayer is the best use of my time in the face of trial. Like, I need to learn from this passage as much as any of you may. But what I hope that each of us will take from this is that prayer is indeed a purposeful and meaningful and useful tool in the face of trials. And Jesus, in this short prayer, as he faces the greatest trial any of us will ever face, he modeled, I think, three qualities of prayer in the face of trial. The three qualities I think are really important to our prayer. And the first of those is that Jesus prays honestly. That Jesus here does not try to, to put on a brave face. He does not try to hide his desire to avoid the trial about the face. He, he does not try to act tough. And that he prays honestly. He said, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. He's not afraid to ask 
God for what he wants. He's not afraid to show that he would rather that God's plan was different. He prays honestly. This is something we read often in the Psalms, especially the the Psalms of Lament. We see the psalmist in the Psalms honestly pouring out their heart to God. They admit to feeling abandoned by God. They admit to wondering if God will remember them. And they're not afraid to express those thoughts directly to God. What we see from those psalmists and what we see especially from Jesus is that honesty in prayer is a reflection of a close, intimate relationship with the Father. You might think that this kind of honesty would be a reflection of distance from the Father. Because if you were truly close to the Father, then your desires and His will must be in lockstep. But the psalmists show us, and Jesus especially shows us, that that's not the case. No one was ever closer to the Father than Jesus, yet He prays honestly. The psalmist and Jesus feel freedom to be honest with God because of their deep, personal, intimate relationship with Him. The prayer is the the action we take in the faith of trials. But if we take it back a step further, the first step then to being prepared to face trials when they come is building this deep, personal, and intimate relationship with God before the trials come. So that when we do face trials, when we are going through life's dark valleys, we feel the freedom because of that closeness to pray honestly. Pour out our heart to God, to tell God what we are feeling, to not be afraid of offending God with our prayer, to not feel like we need to put on a tough face or feel like we need to act like we have full confidence in God. A close relationship with God allows us to to pray honestly to the Father. Just as Jesus prayed honestly to the Father. He prayed like, Father, take this cup from me. I don't want to do this, is what he's saying. I don't want to do this. Take it from me. If there's any other way, let me avoid this fate. He prays honestly. But he also prays humbly. He knows ultimately that what is best for him personally may not be what is best in God's perfect plan. And he knows that his personal comfort, his well-being, must be humbly submitted to God's will. That's why he he brackets his prayer with, with humble submission to God's will. He starts out by saying, Father, if you are willing... And he ends by saying, yet not my will, but yours be done. And an attitude that says, yet not my will, but yours be done, is an attitude that is essential to prayer. We must pray with that kind of humility. We must pray humbly. We must pray with an awareness that our personal desires 
may not always align with what God and His infinite wisdom has deemed as best for His glory. And when God's will and our personal desires come into conflict, we must have the humility in our prayers to say with Jesus, yet not my will, but yours be done. God's will for our life may not always be pleasant, may not always be easy. It certainly wasn't for Jesus. But we must pray with a humility that says, I'm willing to submit myself to your will, Father. Even if, in all honesty, I wish your will were different. But Jesus prays honestly and he prays humbly. The final thing we see from Jesus here is that he prays fervently. He prays with deep emotion. He isn't just going through the motions. He prays and he prays and he prays. In fact, we're told he prays apparently to the point of exhaustion. Because verse 43 tells us that an angel came and strengthened him. He prays so much that he needs to be strengthened by an angel. And how does he use that renewed strength? To pray more. Verse 44. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, more fervently. In fact, he prayed so earnestly, so fervently, that he was sweating profusely. So profusely that Luke says his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And when we pray, like especially in the face of trial, we don't pray one quick, emotionless, one-off prayer. Pray fervently. But here's the perhaps hard reality. Right? That Jesus prayed like this. Jesus modeled all this for us. And yet his prayer was not ultimately answered with a yes. God did not take his cup of wrath from Jesus. In fact, if you read on in Luke, right after this passage ends, and Jesus stopped praying and finds the disciples asleep, right after that a crowd will come and the crowd arrests Jesus and they will put him on trial and he will be mocked and he will be beaten. He will be crucified on a cross where he will endure God's wrath against sin poured out on him. God did not grant Jesus' request in this prayer. Because Jesus' death on the cross in our place for our sin was part of God's good, glorious plan for the universe. What we do see in the passage that should encourage us is that God not granting a request is not the same thing as God's indifference. Verse 43 makes it clear that God heard Jesus' prayer. That he cared about Jesus' prayer. Verse 43, as he was praying, God sends an angel 
from heaven to come and strengthen Jesus. God is aware of what Jesus is going through. He gives Jesus the strength that he needs, in this case in the form of an angel, to face the trials that await him. Just that God sent angels when he was tempted in the wilderness. Now God sent angels here. So the, the big thing we need to understand from this passage, that when we turn to God in prayer, as Jesus modeled for us, when we run to God in prayer as we face trials, running to God in prayer is not a guarantee that we will be spared from the trial. We won't always be spared from the trial. But we will be given the strength to face it. To close this morning, I just want to end with the story of a a man who I think exemplified this well. Borrowing this story from from Philip Brecken's commentary on the book of Luke, but in his commentary he tells the story of James Montgomery Boyce. He's a pastor in Philadelphia for more than 30 years but then learned that he had inoperable liver cancer. So he, he preached his final sermon to his church of more than 30 years on Good Friday of the year 2000, knowing death was coming soon. And in that sermon, he reflected on his diagnosis, and he reflected on God's sovereignty, and he said this. He said, You have been praying, certainly, And I've been assured of that by many people. A relevant question, I guess, when you pray is, pray for what? Did you pray for a miracle? Above all, I would say, pray for the glory of God. If you think of God glorifying himself in history, and you say, where in all of history has God most glorified himself? He did it at the cross of Jesus Christ. And it wasn't by delivering Jesus from the cross, though he could have. Jesus said, don't you think I could have called down from my father 12 legions of angels for my defense? But he didn't do that. And yet that's where God is most glorified. If I were to reflect on what goes on theologically here, there are two things I would stress. One is the sovereignty of God. That's not novel. We have talked about the sovereignty of God here forever. God is in charge. When things like this come into our lives, they are not accidental. It's not as if God somehow forgot what was going on and something slipped by. God does everything according to his will. We've always said that. But what I've been impressed with mostly is something in addition to that. It's possible, isn't it? To conceive of God as sovereign and yet indifferent. God's in charge, but he doesn't care. But it's not that. God is not only the one who is in charge. God is also good. Everything he does is good. If God does something in your life, would you change it? If you'd change it, you'd make it worse. It wouldn't be as good. That's the way... We want to accept it and move forward. And who knows what God will do? We accept it and move forward. He says in the face of dying from inoperable liver cancer, and he says, 
and who knows what God will do. I have no doubt that the boys and others on his behalf like prayed honestly and humbly and fervently for boys to be healed. Yet God did not spare James Montgomery Boyce from his trial. But these remarks from Boyce are a, a beautiful picture of how God gave him strength to face the trial. And it's clear from this and from Boyce's life that that strength was rooted in a deep, personal, intimate relationship with God that he had forged over the years. Because James Montgomery Boyce had no one God personally and deeply. He was able to pray and to face this trial and receive God's strength. So whatever trial you may be facing right now, whatever trials you may face in the future, my hope, my prayer is that you would even now be building a depth of relationship with God so that when those trials come, you can pray honestly, you can pray humbly, you can pray fervently. And when those trials come from you, either God would respond to that prayer by sparing you from the trial. But if He doesn't, that He would give you the strength to face the trial the way he did for Jesus here. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness, your sovereign wisdom, your power, your glorious plan for the universe, and for all of history. So that sovereign plan may lead us into times of trial and temptation. I pray that we would learn from Jesus here how to face those trials how to seek you and earnestly pray to you. And that we can pray honestly, but also that we pray with the humility that knows that you are infinitely wise and we are not. We trust your good plans even when we can't see them. Father, would you show us how to face trials well? Would you give us hearts that yearn to pray to you in the midst of trials and temptations? Would you give us hearts that trust and believe that our prayers to you are not in vain, that they're not wasted? that you care for us, that you hear our prayers, and you will strengthen us. 
Father, we ultimately thank you that you did not spare Jesus from the cup of your wrath, that Jesus went to the cross for us, that Jesus bore your wrath in our place, so that by believing in Jesus, we could have our sins forgiven. We could have eternal life with you. Because Jesus bore our penalty in our place. We thank you for that grace you've given us. We thank you for your mercy towards us. Pray that we would live lives in response to the great things you've done for us in. Pray so in Jesus' name. Amen. As you go from here, you walk into trials of various kinds, would your response to those trials be that you would pray honestly and pray humbly and pray fervently? You are dismissed. sin and shame They were like prisons that we couldn't escape But He came and He died and He rose Those walls are rubble now Remember those giants we called death and grave They were like mountains that stood in our way but he came and he died and he rose those giants are dead
the cross.